The only time I was outdone on time was actually when I ran a training course 20 years ago in Fiji uh, for the World Health Organization. And at lunchtime, I dashed off uh, into Suva to have um, uh, lunch. And I got back, even by my standards, late, um, like half an hour. And I was the first person there. <laughs> then I heard about Fiji time. <laughs> We're not in Fiji today. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you another story here uh, before we get going about Fiji, which is all about leverage. Uh, Tanya and I were talking about leverage and how I think little nuggets of truth um, under God's sovereignty ripple out who knows where. <laughs> I grew up in Fiji uh, between the ages of six and nine and was a Christian by then. My mother had become a Christian and she led me to Christ when I was five. And... Uh, one of the things that happened in Fiji, I used to play with this guy called Natani, uh, Sukunavalu. And he was 12 and I was 5. And I came home one day, or I was more like then 7, I came home one day in tears because I'd been sharing my faith with them. And he, he'd told us that it was all rubbish. And I was very upset by this. So my mother invited Natani home and she led him to Christ. And he was a wild, wild boy. Uh, he was single mother. Um, and we were leaving Fiji at that time. We were just not sure what would happen to this wild boy. My father, who then wasn't a Christian, actually paid uh, for him to go on a Bible study camp, and that, um, which he did. And um, we just always wondered what happened to Natani. Um, uh, about... 20 years later, Anne and I got a phone call. Uh, we lived out at Windsor from Natani, who was flying through Sydney and said he was going to Denmark to study a master's in uh, marine engineering. Now, he always used to tell huge lies, and this was like a fantasy. I mean, if you can imagine, you get this phone call, you put the phone down. Did I just have that phone call or did I just imagine? What's going on here? You know, it was really bizarre. Um, so that passed and... Uh, then when I did this World Health Organization thing, my great friend Jim Island there, I told him the story. I said, can I find this guy? You know, this is now getting on for 20, uh, 30 years later, 25 years. Can I find this guy? I just want to know what's happened to him because he was almost the typical, you know, problem with the, the, the Polynesian, you know, he would, his life would be a mess. And uh, he, he tried... And he, he, everything failed, Jim couldn't. And I was sitting in Jim's office and I looked up and there was this business card pinned to the wall, only one. And he hadn't, I don't know, he didn't know where it came from, how it got there. And it was Natani Sukunivalu, the CEO of uh, the Fijian TAFE, the biggest educational institution in Fiji. And everyone, when we then went back to this course and told them, everyone knew him. Natani ran the biggest educational institution in Fiji, 20,000 people. And his whole family had come to Christ. And he was the pin-up of Fijians that bad boys could make good. So uh, I rang him up that afternoon and we went and saw each other. And after all those years, we got a picture. He was so big. Now I was, he was like this and I was like this. But he was just thrilled that the... He told me all the songs about Christ my mother had taught him. And I thought, there you go, sort of a seven-year-old boy. Um, and what could be more fragile than that story? So who knows where God's word goes and the impact it makes vastly. So uh, I think, and the truer the word is, the bigger the impact. So in uh, we, the word you're talking about is reverberating in our hearts. And lots of us here have got other areas of influence and ministry so we're really looking forward to where you're going to take us today which housekeeping stuff like if you want to make a contribution financially uh out the back there's a the box and the toilets are out the exit door and to the right i think that's it is that all oh and yes we're, we're plugging ian's book 
uh, one of the things I've told Ian is, this is fantastic because it's not a religious book, but we've got to go further, and you are going to go further. He's got to write an airport book, right? Christians are no good at airport books, like Dawkins is. He's a journalist. So, but seriously, Dangerous Religion has got so much of what we're talking about here in a lot of depth and convenient myths. So tell your friends to buy it. Well, I did suggest in my publisher I should write a shorter one called Short and Dangerous. Yes. Um, I was serious, but he just laughed. So, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, um, my computer, this is me, this is technology in me. You know these when they, your computer will start and restart in 10 minutes? No, don't want that to happen. So let me just get rid of that. All right. Well, I don't know if Australians pay much attention to North American politics or whether you feel you have enough going on locally and you don't need to you know, consider uh, that world. But if you have been paying attention to US politics, especially before the Donald Trump phenomenon obliterated coverage of everything else in the Republican Party, if you can remember those days just a few months ago, then you will probably have heard of the Tea Party. Um, the Tea Party is a rather important entity within the Republican Party in the US. Uh, it's a, a loose affiliation of national and local groups, uh, broadly philosophically united. Um, they tend to be anti-big government, pro-fiscal responsibility, for taxation reform, skeptical about global warming, etc. There's, there's a, a general commonality of idea. Um, the Tea Party has supported political candidates in the States since 2009, and in 2010 and 12, Tea Party endorsed candidates upset established Republicans in several primaries in the American electoral system. There's currently a Tea Party caucus in the American Congress, founded and chaired by Michelle Bachman. Last time I checked, it had 66 members, so it's a significant entity. Once it was a fringe movement, but now that is not the case. And following the selection of Paul Ryan as Mitt Romney's vice presidential candidate in 2012, the New York Times declared that Tea Party lawmakers are, quote, now indisputably at the core of the modern Republican Party. So a fairly significant uh, entity. Um, my interest in them this morning doesn't lie in the Tea Party as such. It lies in the following set of facts. Polls from within the last two years suggests that around 44% of the Tea Party's membership self-identify as born-again Christians, 44%. And these are pretty activist Christians. They, they want to see Christian values informing both politics and government. A New York Times survey shows that next to being a Republican, the strongest predictor of being a Tea Party supporter is a desire to see religion play a prominent role in politics. And the New York Times goes on to characterize Tea Party people as those uh, seeking deeply religious elected officials, approving of religious leaders engaging in politics, wanting religion brought into political debates. The Tea Party's generals may say their overriding concern is a smaller government but not their rank and file who are more concerned about putting God in government, end quote. Uh, how you do that, obviously there's a bit of a difference uh, on strategy, but certainly a significant proportion of these Christian people in the Tea Party are Christian reconstructionists. Um, what do I mean by that? These are folks who believe that the Bible should form the sole basis upon which society should be organized. Specifically, they believe 
that biblical law should form the sole basis for American law. So if taxes are not biblical, then there should be no such thing as taxation. If the Bible says the penalty for adultery is death, then U.S. law should prescribe that penalty. Um, to the extent that U.S. society is no longer biblical, it should be reconstructed to make it biblical, which is where the word reconstructionism comes from. And that's what these Christian reconstructionists ultimately hope to achieve as they engage in the political process. It's above all these beliefs and goals that has resulted in some political commentators in the States equating the Tea Party with the Taliban. Here's one example I came across just on the internet. Radical Christians, along with all religious radicals, cannot be reasoned with or accommodated because for them, this is a holy war, a fight against good, uh, for good and against evil. As long as they believe they are doing God's work, nothing can make them compromise in the slightest thing. It is sad that the Tea Partiers had to take Tea Party as their name. They should rightly call, have called themselves the American Taliban because they are no different in their aims of creating a Christian nation than the Taliban in Afghanistan are in creating an Islamic nation there. It's just a random internet posting. Well, those are very strong words, uh, but one can certainly understand why the parallel has been drawn. Since the Taliban, and for that matter, all Islamists, often the folks who are referred to in our media as fundamentalist Muslims, those folks certainly do take a similar approach to religion and society. Uh, we can sum up the Islamist view in these words. It is the task of the Islamic State to enforce obedience to the revealed law of Islam, the Sharia, which is a timeless manifestation of the will of God, subject neither to history nor circumstance. It's eternal, it's unquestioned, the only thing is whether people obey it or not, and the task of the Islamist state is to make sure that people do. That, that's the vision, that's the, the social political vision. Uh, we'll, set a, we'll get a better understanding maybe of this approach as we have been doing in these talks by setting this view alongside other kinds of approach just to sharpen this up. So this is part of my everything comes as a package deal argument that we've been pursuing in the last few talks. So I want to do that first of all, and I'll introduce in a moment a gentleman whose work will help us uh, do that because I'm interested here, as I said last evening, in the overlap or not of ethics, law, and politics. So clearly the Islamists have a particular view of how those three things belong together. Essentially, they're all the same thing, actually. Um, so I want to talk about ethics and politics and law, um, and I want to suggest that they are not all the same thing, in fact, although they overlap. So let me just explain my view, just so you know the, understand the vocabulary I'm using. I'm going to be using the word ethics to talk about how I ought to live, politics, how we ought to live, and law as interacting with both of those things in quite complicated ways. Okay, so that's the basic vocabulary. So just to give you an example, let's take the question of generosity. You might well believe that it is an ethical imperative that individuals should be generous, ethics. Your politics might well envisage a society marked by that generosity. That would be your politics. But you might well believe it doesn't make any sense for a government to legislate in favor of generosity. That would be law, you see? So those are different things. Now you might actually believe that all three things ought to apply. You might well believe that, but my point is that 
we at least have to think about those entities and how they relate to each other. So, having drawn those distinctions, I want to step back and ask the question, in terms of big picture worldviews, which kinds of options do we see for negotiating those three entities? And I want to use here the analysis of Shmuel Eisenstadt, who is an Israeli sociologist, and he offers us a typology of perspectives on this question. Eisenstadt differentiates three kinds of civilizations. The first he calls otherworldly civilizations. So these are civilizations that have been dominated by Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, he talks about this worldly but non-monotheistic civilizations. He's thinking here of Confucian China. And he talks about monotheistic civilizations shaped by religions like Islam, right? And he says, these are very different kinds of worldviews when it comes to this issue, as I've been trying to say, in fact, on every issue, these are very, very different worldviews. Each of these civilizations, he says, each of these possesses what he calls a transcendental vision. What he means by that is, what is the big idea about what we are aiming for as individuals and groups? What is our destiny? What do we see as the the highly valued ends towards which we are moving. Each of these societies has a transcendental vision, and then they have different ideas about how far we ought to try to make that transcendental vision a reality here and now. So should we bring it to earth, as it were? How far should our actual society be made to conform to our transcendental vision. In otherworldly civilizations, Eisenstadt uh, notes, the political arena has not been viewed as the primary arena in which the transcendental vision should be realized. So if you are thinking about civilizations dominated by religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, he says, there is in this view no strong alternative conception of the social and the political order. So I'm a Hindu or a Buddhist, and it's not my main thing to change this society and make it correspond to a transcendental vision. And we talked about that in terms of an escapist view, right? Our main job is to escape this world, it's not to change it. And therefore, in these cultures, you do not typically, historically, find any propo proposals for active transformation of society. In fact, you find principled passivity when it comes to the current political social order. The ultimate goal is to escape the world, it's not to change it. And then, secondly, um, a this-worldly civilization like Confucian China the political arena has been seen as the primary locus in which the transcendental vision should be realized. But in spite of that, as a matter of fact, there has been no far-reaching institutional reconstruction of the political centers of society. Why is that? It's because Confucius was fundamentally interested in retrieving the harmonious past, not in creating new institutions, projects, and practices in society. So it's a backward-looking retrieval. It's a fairly conservative entity. It's not about reconstructing society going forward, drawn by the transcendental vision. In fact, says Eisenstadt, in spite of the fact he himself uses the word transcendental, there really is nothing transcendental about it. The idea is not coming from the outside, it's coming from the past. Right? It's not a dualistic view in which you're looking outwards and upwards and so on, not to the future. 
there is in Confucianism no God outside the system, as it were, summoning Confucius and the political powers to the implementation of a transcendental uh, vision. Uh, now, this all fits perfectly well with everything else we talked about with regard to Confucius and so on in the last few talks. In the third case, uh, the tendency, says Eisenstadt, is certainly not passivity. It is extreme activism. Indeed, it is utopianism. There is, in the third view, these monotheistic civilizations, and he takes Islam as his main representative. We find here a strong and urgent call to reconstruct the mundane political world on the basis of a God-given transcendental vision. And Islamism uh, reflects that set of beliefs very clearly. Um, for those who adhere to this worldview, as we've just seen, it is the task of the Islamic State, the same quote as I had there a moment ago, to enforce obedience to the revealed law of Islam. Uh, the Sharia law that we have in mind here, you may know this, applies to much more than law in the strictly legal sense. Sharia law also applies to the details of ritual, to a whole range of customs and manners. It's a pretty all-encompassing view of law. And in Islamism, there is no ultimate distinction between religion, morality, law, and ethics. All of these proceed directly from the command of God. All of these ought to be adhered to here and now by, by everyone. Everyone should live on in submission to this. All peoples in all times and places should submit to the timeless manifestation of the will of Allah. And it is the purpose of the Islamic State to ensure that they do, bringing the kingdom of God, as it were, to earth. That's exactly what the plan is. So that's why Eisenstadt calls it utopian. It's about bringing perfection here to the here and uh, now. The gap should be closed. It should be closed completely. It should be closed speedily. And you find that approach, of course, in modern history. Uh, those of you in the audience who are a bit older will remember the fellow on the other side of the screen there, Ayatollah Khomeini, some of you remember this uh, guy who took power in Iran in 1979, um, and he allowed and indeed encouraged others to refer to him by the title Imam, implying that he was the Messiah figure that that branch of Islam, uh, the Shiites, actually look for. Um, so there were very strong messianic pretension uh, to the views attached to Ayatollah Khomeini, and of course the, the nation of Iran, the way that it has become structured, reflects that uh, reality, because the, the Ayatollah figure is really the vice-regent of God on earth, and his job is to make sure it happens, as it were. Well, now, it is this third of Eisenstadt's approaches to ethics and politics and law. It's in that zone that the blogger I quoted earlier places Christian Reconstructionism. That's, that's where the map, that's where those folks fit on the map. And that's what leads the blogger to say, really, they shouldn't be called the Tea Party, but the American Taliban. And actually, I have to say, I think that this analogy is fair up to a point. And so, the big question that arises for us, and this is the big question of this entire session, this first session, is that kind of view of politics really the one that arises from the best reading of Christian Scripture? Is that really the best way of thinking about the Bible and politics, to put that in a different way, which kind of society is biblical? What is the good society from a Christian point of view? 
Christian Reconstructionists have a very definite idea of the answer to that question. That's why they involve themselves in politics. That's why they are such fierce advocates of a particular kind of homeschooling, because they want to keep their children away from competing views. They, they want purity of thought, as it were, undiluted by alternative ideas. In particular, many of them want to keep their children away from democratic ideas because they regard democracy as clearly unbiblical. Uh, in fact, the founding father of Christian Reconstructionism is a, is a man called Rusas John Rushduni, who said this about democracy, democracy is the great love of the failures and cowards of life. One biblical faith, one law, and one standard of justice did not mean democracy the heresy of democracy has since then worked havoc in church and state. Christianity and democracy are inevitably enemies." Uh, end quote. So, that's pretty robust. It's pretty straightforward. Um, so, if that's what you believe, of course, you will not be wanting to send your children to public school. Right? And so, so, a lot of these folks, and I know there's one than, more than one kind of homeschooling. I'm not you know, attacking homeschooling. I'm just saying it's part of the way in which you negotiate the politics from a Christian point of view, if that's the view that you have. So, building a biblical society, seeking to take dominion over all secular institutions and all secular law to make everything biblical. So, my question is, what is a biblical society? What does a biblical polis, the Greek word for city-state, what does the biblical polis from which we get our word politics look like? If you're a Christian Reconstructionist, you think the Bible gives you the building plans for the New Jerusalem, and our task is simply to build it as quickly as possible, uh, by next week if, if possible. Okay, that's what I uh, want to, to get at, and I'm going to be offering a rather different view. I'm going to be arguing that the Jerusalem view of politics does not draw a direct line of connection between theology, ethics, and politics. I simply don't think that is indeed the biblical view of the whole matter. In fact, I'm going to argue that the biblical moral vision, so what it is we're aiming for ethically, what our ethos is, that in important ways, the biblical moral vision is accommodated in a number of different ways in Scripture to the circumstances of history and culture as we actually find them. So, it's not the imposition of the vision on history and culture. In fact, in Scripture, God works with the world as God finds it, calling people all the time to be holy, but working in a far more pragmatic way than the Christian Reconstructionist view allows for. Uh, to put that in very simple terms, uh, God does not legislate the kingdom of God, and if God does not, that should be a pretty strong hint to us that we should not either. That's in a, in, in a nutshell, that's the argument I'm going to be developing. And I'm going to do this uh, just by running through some pretty well-known scriptural texts and, and just following some implications through. So, let's begin at the beginning uh, in Genesis, first 36 chapters of Genesis. How does God relate to the world in these early chapters of the Bible? Well, certainly, God calls human beings to the same goodness that He displays. He commands it because He knows it's for His creature's own good. We talked about that last night. There's a whole set of right relationships held out in front of us. We ought, in fact, to seek to relate to God and each other and the planet in these ways. So, that's very, very clear. But what's equally clear is that God does not coerce the goodness that He commands. In fact, God allows His creatures, His human creatures, to exercise moral freedom in choosing whether to obey. The human failure to obey also does not bring the world immediately to an end. 
nor does it lead to divine disengagement from the world. It's not that God says, well, this is a disaster. I, I'm, I'm going somewhere else. You know, that's not the picture you get in Genesis. God, who is perfectly good in Genesis, finds ways of continuing to work for the good of the world, now compromised by evil. He doesn't reject the world. He doesn't stand aloof from the world. God takes the world as He finds it, and He actively works with what He finds to lead it, to nudge it towards the good, to persuade it towards the good. Let's look at a few examples from uh, the story. Uh, well, we're not there yet. Um, we are still with uh, Abel. Cain murders Abel. We talked a bit about this the other night. From a biblical standpoint, a perfectly appropriate response to Cain's murder of Abel would have been a life for a life, uh, so Cain must bear the consequences of that murder. Only a life can compensate for a life. You can't translate that into money. Image-bearing is a far more precious commodity than that, so you can't trade for a life. And yet, as clear as that is in the Old Testament, we find that Cain is not, in fact, put to death for the murder of Abel. In fact, instead, God sends him into exile. God does not do what certainly would have been justified. Uh, the murderer lives on. And, what's more, God looks after the murderer. Even though Cain refused to keep his brother Abel, God promises to keep Cain. Do you remember he gives him that mark of protection? He essentially says, I will be your avenger of blood if people attack you. Cain's worried, you remember, he's going to be vulnerable. And God says, well, okay, I'll take care of that. Uh, you want a family to, to look after you? I will do that. So, in this very first opening story after the entrance of moral evil into the story, God treats Cain extraordinarily graciously. Um, God, you could say rightly, creates structures. He creates society so that things don't become worse than they already are, right? So, He creates structures of justice in this mark of protection language. It's not an ideal society, but it is a society in which there is still some good. So, God continues to bless Cain in spite of everything. And as we read on, we read about Cain's family line and the things that some of those people achieved. It's a mixed bag, of course, but the very fact the story goes on is highly significant. And then we get to the flood story. Um, and you remember in this story, things get really, really bad, and God's justice comes upon the world. Uh, we're told that this happens because every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So, that's a pretty bad scenario. And so, we have uh, this, this great flood, and afterwards, we discover that nothing has changed. Genesis 8, every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. So, it was bad before, and it's equally bad afterwards. Uh, so, the flood has come, but in, it hasn't changed anything really about the whole state of affairs. But in spite of that, in Genesis 8, God promises never to curse the ground again because of human evil, never again to send a flood. Indeed, God promises stability as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, uh, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Life will go on. God guarantees that life will go on, not because the human heart has changed, but because in a very appropriate way, God has adjusted Himself to the circumstances, has created space for, for this to be. It's a rather extraordinary idea, you see. Uh, God accommodates Himself in this sense to the world so that the world can go on in this very, very imperfect state. It's a very extraordinary, we don't notice it, I think, sometimes or often. It's a very extraordinary perspective on the gods and human society. Unparalleled, I would suggest, actually. 
So in this story, human beings are not about to change, and so God uh, just takes, a, takes account of that and says, okay, that's how we're going to go from, the, from this point on. And this characteristic, this way of looking at God's interactions with the world is also prominent then through the story, because you will remember from the book of Genesis that uh, the people that God calls on this great mission to rescue the world are a pretty mixed bunch of people. Um, Abraham and Sarah, God works with Abraham and Sarah. Well, Abraham is in many ways a good guy, but he's also capable of lying when it suits him to do so. Do you remember he lies about who Sarah is? Sarah is capable of being exceedingly cruel to the concubine Hagar. Both Abraham and Sarah are portrayed as failing to trust God for the son that has been promised and going to their own plan B to sort out this difficulty. It's not the ideal society, but God works within the framework of the societal disorder, and He tries, He seeks all the time to turn it back towards the good. He deals with what He finds. In the course of this story, we learn that God would even have gone on working with Sodom and Gomorrah if only a few righteous people had been found there. That's how far God is prepared to go. We have an utterly wicked culture, but it turns out that even if there had been only a few people who were righteous, God would have taken account of a rather, again, extraordinary picture, it seems to me, of, of who God is. In other words, in spite of the caricature that we often get about the Old Testament, we do not find in the Old Testament a God who is anxious to bring justice even on very wicked people. God would much prefer they stop being wicked. Uh, and so, you, there's no anxiety to, to bring this ultimate eschatological judgment on the world. In fact, it's the patience of God, the, the God who is slow to anger. There's the great emphasis uh, in this story. Later on, God works with Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and they're a bit of a mess, of course, you remember. Um, brother deceives brother. Esau outdone by Jacob. Um, you, know, you remember this famous language of Esau is a hairy man and Jacob is a smooth man, which, of course, works at more than one level. He's a smooth operator. Um, is Jacob. He's, he's a cheat, in fact. That's his most striking characteristic. The whole of that society is deeply corrupted by favoritism. Rebecca loves Jacob. That holds family dynamic about favoritism. Disaster. Uh, Jacob learns nothing from this, and he does the same with Joseph later on. Uh, so, we get to the Joseph story, and we discover that things are just the same. Uh, Joseph, well, I mean, he's a brat, really, as the story opens, isn't he? He's a very unpleasant young, young man, <laughs> as the story opens. He provokes his brother's hatred, and of course, they, they don't come out of the story well either. They're a pretty bloodthirsty, vengeful lot. Um, so, it's a very, very strange group of people to, 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 for God to be working with in some estimations of the story. Uh, later on, Joseph, you know, he does quite well in some respects, but he does marry that Egyptian wife, you know, and uh, in, the, in the Pentateuch, that's obviously a little bit dodgy, you know, and uh, have you ever thought about the way he treats the Egyptians in the midst of the famine? Uh, rather oppressive uh, set of measures. In fact, he oppresses the Egyptians in much the way the Egyptians later oppressed the Hebrews in the story. He's not a, he's not a he heroic figure, Joseph, in spite of the musicals and stuff that you may see. He's a far more interesting, human, flawed character with his great triumphs and then some stuff that's not so great, actually. And uh, so, God works with Jacob's children um, and tries to turn things toward the good. And the one thing about Joseph that is impressive is that by the end of the story, he's beginning to get it. And he says some extraordinary things towards the end of the story. You may remember this. When, the, when it comes out, 
eventually that he is indeed the brother of these guys. And he says to them, now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And he goes on to say this, you intended to harm me, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. He doesn't say, don't worry about it, guys. It wasn't that bad. He says, nope, you guys are really bad. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in the midst of all of that. And God turns it to good and brings good out of it. And that's, by the end of the book of Genesis, we're now getting a pretty consistent idea of who God is in relation to the world. So, if you ask yourself the question, in the biblical vision, what is the good society? The most important thing about answering that question is to recognize that at the heart of the good society is the God who pursues the good, overcoming what is evil. And in the book of Exodus, we have the same idea. God rescues His people from Egypt. Are these people different in character from the previous lot? Have they improved morally? Is that why they get rescued? Well, of course, if you've read the book of Exodus, you will know that that is very far from being the case. Um, indeed, you may remember that while Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's law, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain committing apostasy on day one, right? I mean, that, that's who these people are. Uh, the people have not changed. Has God changed? Well, just for a moment, that possibility is entertained that God will just have done with the whole thing. But in fact, it turns out that's not the case. And even though they're a stiff-necked people, uh, God agrees with Moses that we're, we're going to go on with this. We're going to proceed. Um, and, and it becomes very, very clear, I think, in this story then, that God does not deal with the world in an all-or-nothing manner. God works with the world as He finds it, he accommodates himself to the world to a certain extent so that the world may continue. When it comes to the new Jerusalem, God is a gradualist, I would say. God in the world nudges the world slowly in the direction of the new Jerusalem. He doesn't just drop the new Jerusalem on people's heads, as it were. It has to come from within. It has to arise organically. It has to uh, arise out of uh, uh, the participation of human beings in the project. And then when we get to God's law, it's very important to recognize that we haven't changed tracks. There's a certain syllogistic logic that doesn't help us here. It goes like this. God is perfect. God gave us the law. Therefore, the law must be perfect, which sounds very neat. Uh, but like a lot of that syllogistic logic, it's simply not up to the task of describing actual reality. Because in fact, that's not what we read about in the law, in the Pentateuch. So God gives this law, a, a comprehensive set of guidelines for the Israelites about what the good life looks like, what is it we're aiming for. We talked about those relational realities last evening. But what is particularly striking about this good society that is, appears in these rules is that the good society is not the ideal society. The good society is not the ideal society. In biblical law, we do find a lot of ideals embedded there. Certainly, the moral vision of Scripture informs the law in all sorts of ways. But in the law, there's also all sorts of stuff that doesn't reflect ideals at all. It's not what those particular laws are doing. Biblical law is designed not just to hold the biblical moral vision in front of the people. It's also designed to achieve other ends as well. The God who is entirely good does not actually seek to build a society based only on the moral vision. God is in the business in, in the Pentateuch of building a society that also takes seriously people's moral failings. It's a both and. 
Now, it's quite easy to illustrate this point about the law not necessarily representing ideals. We only have to take the example of slavery to illustrate the point. There are various rules about slaves in the Old Testament law, both native and foreigner, so Hebrew slaves and foreign slaves, perhaps people captured in war or whatever. The thing that binds the rules together is that they are all of them premised on the sense of the humanity of the slave, which is quite important, uh, an important thing to say because that was not a given in the ancient world. Uh, slaves in Old Testament law are regarded as being part of the family of the owner, sharing in the family's worship, sharing in the Sabbath rest from labor. They have certain legal rights and so on. So, this is about protecting people in the midst of certain social circumstances. And to a certain extent, uh, these laws represent a, a more generous attitude towards slaves than the one we find expressed in the rest of the ancient world. With all of that said, though, it remains the case that under Israelite law, slaves are certainly not regarded as equal to their owners, for example. There is a hierarchy here. And the question that arises is, how does that qualify as the good society? Where's the good in that? And I think the answer is, the good lies in this, that if there are going to be slaves, then at least there should be rules regulating the entire institution. The good lies in the, the limited good that law brings to human uh, interactions with each other. These laws were very necessary because in other parts of the Old Testament, we constantly read of people trying to break them and leave them behind and treat slaves much more badly. So, slaves are not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but biblical texts frequently uh, condemn actual Israelites breaking the Sabbath law, for example. Hebrew slaves were to be released after six years, but Jeremiah says that often that wasn't happening. In other words, there was no predisposition on the part of the average Israelite to obey the law on this point because, of course, it was an economic constraint, right? And, you know, lot, typically people don't like economic constraints. You may have noticed that. And, and so to have rules about how you treat slaves was, was darn inconvenient, actually. So why did you need laws about slavery? That's why you needed laws about slavery. It offered limited protection, significant limited protection, uh, to slaves. It's a good. It's a good thing, but it's a limited good. It's not a utopian good. It's not, you know, we shall simply now abolish the institution of slavery, even though the biblical story begins by telling us that all men and women are made in the image of God. So, there's no question about what the big picture is, but we don't see that big picture, that moral vision, entirely reflected in Old Testament law. There's no uh, idealism in that sense about the law. And if you're wondering, well, how is that? Because God, after all, is all-powerful and good, and wouldn't God legislate? I think it's because God is far wiser than we are. And of course, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to pass a law, then you have to be reasonably sure that people are going to make some effort to obey it, otherwise it's useless. So, wise legislators do not legislate ideals under any circumstances, actually. Wise legislators work out what's the context, what can we get away with to make things slightly better, let's do that. Because if you legislate at too high a level, people will ignore it or rebel, and then you have chaos, and things are worse than when you started. So, the ideal biblical moral vision is not captured necessarily in the law. Uh, the ideal is represented in, in last evening's language by things like loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. It's very significant here that when Job defends his virtue against his accusers in Job chapter 31, so this is his great speech about why really he doesn't deserve what's happening to him. So, it's important for Job to establish his ethical 
right, rightness. When Job sets out to do that, he does not appeal to the law. It's very, very interesting. So, for example, the law forbids adultery. And you might expect Job simply to say, I have not committed adultery. I've been a lawkeeper. What he actually says is, he has refrained from looking lustfully at a girl. Right? That's moral vision. It's not merely the law, right? This, of course, Jesus makes a lot of this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same point, basically. He takes it from Job, I believe, actually. Now, all of that chapter is of that nature. You should read it later on. Most importantly for our purposes uh, here, Job denies that he has denied justice to his slaves when they have brought a complaint against him. That's rather extraordinary. Uh, can you imagine any slave in Athens bringing a complaint against the master? It's just not in the ballpark, right? for reasons that we'll explore uh, at some point today. I can't remember when. So, Job is defending his virtue, and he doesn't just say, yeah, I've kept those laws, you know, about not beating my slaves or whatever. I've kept those laws. That's not what he does. He says, I have not denied justice to my slaves when they have brought a complaint against me. That moves well beyond the master-slave relationship envisaged in the law, well beyond it. Um, in other words, he's really saying, I've treated my slaves like neighbors, actually. That, that's what I've done. In fact, the basis for Job's approach to his slaves explicitly in Job 31 is the fact that they are both human beings. He explicitly appeals to the common humanity of himself and the slaves in making this point. Both, he says, are fashioned by God in the womb. In the language of Genesis 1, both are made in the image of God. That's fundamentally what drives Job's ethics. But the law does not require that of him, right? So that's a very important point. So for Job, and indeed for Moses for that matter, this doesn't imply that the institution of slavery should yet be abolished. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why that was very likely not a, an option in the ancient world, as it was not a realistic option in the Roman Empire either, which is why the apostles don't commend it. You remember, they don't argue for the abolition of slavery. What they advocate for is that all Christians should treat their slaves like brothers and sisters, which in the end will bring an end to the institution of slavery, right? But there was no realistic possibility that Christians who were hanging on by the skin of their teeth for the first uh, 300 years, there, obviously there's no realistic possibility that there would have been a political program available to, to change society at that larger level. But if you follow the logic of the moral vision through, then eventually as people own it, it will change society and politics and eventually the world. It's a very deliberate approach that's persuasive in its nature. It's not coercive. And it reflects, of course, God's non-coercive approach to, to the world. Uh, so, uh, it's very clear from this example that the purpose of the Old Testament law is not only to promote the biblical moral vision. Part of the purpose of Old Testament law is simply to bring a degree of order and justice to the world as God finds it, as we find it. Part of the purpose of the law is to prevent things from becoming worse than they otherwise are. The Old Testament law, I don't believe for a moment, promotes slavery. It simply recognizes that slavery exists, and while it exists, it tries to regulate it and to uh, make it as, uh, you know, less, as, as little wicked as is possible in the circumstances would be, a, would be the best way of uh, uh, putting that. Leon Cass, who's a, a great favorite of mine, he's a, a Jewish author who wrote an absolutely great book on Genesis because he was concerned that his grandchildren were losing touch with their Jewish heritage, and his answer was to write a book about that thick. It's a wonderful book which I'm not sure his grandchildren, unfortunately, would have read. But it's a, just a great book. And, and he says this about law. 
in general. The emergence of law is a response to the evils that lurk in the hearts of men. To control these evils, law must not only accept their unavoidable existence, it must also offer them concessions, and moreover, even enlist their aid in support of civil peace. You see, he's, he's, he's trying to explain what law is and what it does and what it doesn't do. And he's very realistic about, about, uh, about that. Um, I've ever t I, I tell this group, I can't remember, you see, it's all blurs for me. I, I have a story about uh, uh, helmets in Greece. Have I told you folks this story? Just an illustration on this point of law. Uh, my wife and I went to uh, Santorini, lovely Greek island, and we got ourselves one of these all-terrain vehicles, you know, because you can buzz around Santorini quite effectively in these things. And the fellow said, you must take a helmet. It's the law of Greece that everyone, you know, riding a motorcycle or an, uh, an all-terrain vehicle, they must wear helmets. So we're Canadians, you know, very law-abiding people, and we, okay. So we got our helmet, and we both put our helmets on. Law of Greece, very important. And we drive off. And throughout the entire day, we didn't meet anyone else wearing a helmet. And we asked somebody about this. I thought this was the law of Greece. Oh, it is. But nobody keeps it. And the police can't be bothered to enforce it. And so, it, you know, great. You see, you see my point. It's a trivial example. You can have a law for all you want. But if that law is not owned by a significant proportion of the population, and if the people whose duty it is to enforce it can't be bothered to do it, it's worse than useless. It invites disrespect for law in general. You see what I mean? And I think that's the dynamic here. Civilization superimposes itself upon the state of nature in the form of law. It forces upon all of us, even the mighty among us, some degree of submission to the rule of law. Uh, to that extent, it promotes the good, of course. To that extent, it does promote the biblical moral vision because it nudges us in that direction. But it's not naive, it's not idealistic, even while demanding this kind of respect, it concedes, it accommodates, it compromises with. It must do so to be effective. So, in conclusion to all of that bit, in this biblical story, in God's interactions with the world, we find an enormous degree of pragmatism attributed to God in the Jerusalem vision of uh, society, of politics. We find a very pragmatic view taken of human society. God does, of course, call everyone to worship Him, to love Him, to love their neighbor, to look after the world. There's no question about the, the, the very noble and high vision to which Scripture calls us in our ethical lives. But God does not impose these ideals, does not impose the kingdom upon us. He works towards these ideals in a cosmos which is open. It's not platonically closed. We've talked about this a number of times. In Plato's world, the cosmos is closed, static, rigid, unchanging, and, and you can't have this view of slowly nudging towards things on that worldview. It's impossible. You can't have a personal God doing that kind of work in the world on the way to a destination if you have this kind of uh, platonic, immobile, static cosmos. In Scripture, we're on a journey, and we have all sorts of metaphors given to us, including uh, the mustard seed, small thing that grows, including the field in, with the wheat and the tares in it. You remember that God leaves until the end. That's another image of the same thing that we're, we're talking about, right? It's a great image, actually, from the Gospels of the same kind of thing. The kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven, as the Lord's Prayer encourages us to pray. But there's no insistence, I suggest, in Scripture that the earth must immediately and right now be conformed to that, to that ultimate destination. In biblical thinking, even God does not attempt to legislate the kingdom of God. 
in, in this manner. And if that is so, then it really means, I think it fairly obviously means, that for those who follow Jerusalem's program, as it were, we have to think really hard about the kind of polis, the kind of city-state, the kind of nation that we would like to see come into being. And we need to think very clearly about the kinds of actions we ought to take to help that to happen. If the heart of biblical ethics is the imitation of God, which I think it is, right, it's not, not difficult to find texts about that, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? So the heart of the, the Christian understanding of ethics is the imitation of God. Well, of course, then in politics, that, that applies too, yes? So those who stand within Jerusalem's walls are called to imitate God in all of our lives, including our political lives. And if God approaches the matter of politics in the ways that I've just described, then we have to think very, very hard about how we approach the question of politics too. Uh, Mark Leela, um, no idea where he's coming from really in terms of his big picture, but he does say some very interesting things about politics. Political life, he says, revolves around disputes over authority who may legitimately exercise power over others, to what ends and under what conditions. In such disputes, it might be enough to appeal to something in human nature that legitimizes the exercise of authority and leave the matter there, but any reflection about human experience has a way of traveling up the chain of causes, first to the cosmos and then to God. Uh, this is true descriptively. There's nothing wrong with that from Jerusalem's point of view, because who God is and all of that obviously directly bears on politics, as, as everything else does. But in the matter of politics, we have to think very hard about how things travel up the chain of causes, first to the cosmos and then to God, because when you begin to invoke God on your side in your crusades and causes, that's a very significant and powerful powerful thing to do, and it, it can be exceedingly dangerous. Uh, Mark Leela goes on like this, for many believers in the biblical religions, today as in the 17th century, sundering the connection between political form and divine revelation means betraying God, whose commandments are comprehensive. So, he's thinking there about Islamism. He's thinking there about the kind of Christians we began with, right? That's their view. It's betraying God to allow any slippage between these entities. And uh, he's pointing back to the 17th century, which is very significant because that's the point at which Christians decided that they had to find a different way of approaching this instead of killing each other. So, in the middle of the 17th century, they basically said, this is not working very well. We've got to stop and we've got to find a different way of living together. And that's really where our modern democratic liberal states in the West come from, right? They come out of that vision of finding a different way to do this and to negotiate, as it were, uh, that. If what I've been saying is right, then I simply want to say there's more than one way of betraying God. That would be my big point. Uh, to try to impose the kingdom of God, to legislate the kingdom of God, uh, even where God does not appear to wish to do so, is a mistake. It's naive. It is departing, actually, from the biblical vision, and I don't think that we should be doing that. It seems to me that our politics must be far more pragmatic than that, um, and not because we're giving up on the ethical vision, just because we're distinguishing these, these realms in appropriate ways and, and uh, dealing well with the overlap. Uh, like God, Jerusalem looks, certainly looks for a society promoting righteousness as much as realistically possible while restraining and minimizing evil and redeeming evil and turning it toward good. But I would describe that as a middled society, picking up my middled in the story language from the other night, is participating with God in nudging contemporary society toward the good. But that's not an uncomplicated thing to do, and we have to think really clearly about it. 
And I absolutely believe that we should not be Christian Reconstructionists. I, I just, I, I do not think that squares at all well, actually, with what Scripture actually has to say uh, on this important uh, topic. All right, um, we'll stop there. I believe we're just doing tea. We're not breaking now for questions, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Ian, that's one of the, the two or three most important talks I've heard in my life. I might be the only one sitting here who thinks that. But... Thank you. Yeah, that's no exaggeration. Um, my mind's going at a million miles an hour. Um, so, two things. Uh, Rick wants to reinvent theology as design. Mm -hmm. And if I put the word design over God's modus operandi with the world, that would actually give the operating model of what yeah. you're talking about. Um, which is mind-blowing to me. That's the world that I live in and made a lot of sense of my life. There's one other little story I want to tell. To, um, like a lot of my stories and yours, it's, I'm glad to see you're as forgetful as me. Most of the details have receded. Um, this comes from Drew Harrison who works with us and um, it's a major piece of philosophy and literary criticism by a guy whose name I can't remember and I can't remember what school of philosophy or literary criticism it came from. But essentially, um, it's a kind of philosophy of pragmatism which he illustrates from Pride and Prejudice. When you read Pride and Prejudice, of course, as you know, very early on, there's this uh, miscommunication between Darcy and Elizabeth. That means they get cranky with each other and spend the entire novel finding out um, how, in fact, they had made mistakes about each other. Right. And at the end of the novel, of course, finally they get together. We're all frustrated throughout the novel that it takes them so long. And he asks the point, would it have been better if they hadn't miscommunicated, saved themselves all of that pain and actually got married in page 13 or whenever it was? And he comes to the conclusion it would not have been better. Uh, we would have missed out on a great story. But if they got married at page 13, they probably would have got divorced soon afterwards because there was a lot of growth that went on in that journey right. of kind of uh, pragmatic finding out about each other. And when they did finally get married, on page 230 or whenever it was, they were very different people to page 13. So I guess I'm sort of seeing behind that pragmatic intervention, there's an enormous growth in character involved and an expansion of character that yeah. we'd be engaged in. Absolutely, and, and of course that's even more strikingly true in the latest um, zombie movie about Pride and Prejudice, where the things they have to contend with are even more character-forming again. And, uh, yeah, so. Fantastic. Let's take a break and come back. <laughs>